Hello everyone, welcome to Birdcast, the only podcast recorded inside Alive Avery. And today I'm here with a very, very interesting guest. Now, throughout our podcast series, we have met some truly outstanding bird custodians. It never fails to amaze me. The links and sacrifices these people forgo to keep and care for their incredible birds. Today's episode, featuring one of these inspiring bird custodians, and it's truly amazing story, which involves one of the most threatened large bird species in Australia. We hope you enjoy this episode and learn as much as we did. Alright, now let's get into it. Welcome to Birdcast, Bill. Thanks for speaking on this episode. Please start by introducing yourself. Uh, yeah, g'day. Uh, my name's William Palmer. I'm almost 50 years old. I live in the outer suburbs of Sydney. I'm currently a traffic controller for work. I've got various hobbies. I love nature. Birds is my primary passion in life. So, of course, I uh, keep birds. And I keep a variety of birds from South American, New Guinean, Asiatic, as well as a few Australian species. My primary uh, species of rare, which is my favourite, and also a very, very rare species, is the southeastern red black cockatoo. Okay. All right. Well, as I have never ever seen a southeastern red tailed black cockatoo in real life, can you go ahead and just describe a little bit what it looks like? Yeah, sure. Uh, the red is a uh, species of red tail, and as we all know, there's five races of red tailed black cockatoo, and. Overall, the appearance of red-tailed black cockatoos is the same. Um, but on close observation, the grudger giant is uh, the smallest of all the five races of red-tail. You'll also note they have the smallest bills. Their beak is very, very uh, narrow. Okay. Another feature of them is their um, pattern of spotting and barring on their uh, breast of the females. They have more spotting and colour barring on their breast than any other race. The next closest race of red tail to look like them would be the uh, Western Australian NATO race. The chest feathers on the female are two-toned, so they're yellow in the centre and they're edged in red-orange, which is quite stunning. As well as that, the spotting comes in actually three colours, almost white to um, almost orange and also in three different sizes, so they're quite spectacular. They look like they're painted. And the name Graptor Giant actually is Aboriginal for Painted Lady. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now, whereabouts in Australia is the uh, the homeland of this bird? Okay, uh, um, the southeastern uh, red tail cockatoo has a very, very limited range in southwest Victoria and southeast South Australia. And the centre of their range is the town of Horsham. Mm-hmm. Okay, I did not know that. We have learnt from you some fascinating points about this bird's natural diet. Please explain what their homeland diet and what makes it so unique. Yes, sure. The giant or southeastern reptile has a very, very limited specialised diet. There's actually only three species of plants out there that the birds will utilise for the brown stringy bark, the desert stringy bark, and the bullock tree. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, these three trees are um, in 
endangered species themselves in that area because um, a lot of them have been cleared to make way for grazing land and others have succumbed to fires and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. The wild dyer is not the only thing unique for this red tail. Could you please explain the breeding pattern for me? Uh, yeah, they um, actually have a unique um, adaptive breeding pattern. Now, um, these species can have been known to breed for years. Their primary breeding season is actually the autumn and winter months. Okay. Why do you think they breed in this pattern? That is a various reason. I, I think they choose winter mainly because, for one, these birds only have one baby. And the prolonged mating period, they may only have one baby every two years. So, with limited uh, nesting sites and stuff like that, and aggressive species like galahs and corellas also in their habitat, I believe that these birds have chosen to um, breed in winter, so that way they don't have to fight to have a nesting site, so the competition is a lot less. Um, yeah, as well as that, I believe that um, they breed in winter because in the autumn and winter months, that's when the bullock tree is actually... These birds are adapted to eat these bullock seeds. And so there's no competition at that period with any other birds for these seeds apart from other southeastern reptiles. So it gives them a reliable source of very nutritious um, food to raise their babies with. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any personal theories about why this bird has such a decline in the wild? Um, I believe that, uh, like, like, breeding pattern there's multiple reasons why these species disappears you know there can be one primary reason but usually multiple reasons why species decline decline i think like uh what, what many many species on the planet are facing at the moment habitat destruction is the number one primary reason why uh graptogyne reptiles are still in numbers in the wild and did decline for many many years you know, when um, we started colonising this country, we cleared vast areas indiscriminately to make way for grasslands and stuff to feed our cattle and sheep without any real regard to the native species and what effect it will have upon them. So I believe that's a primary reason. So how did you become involved in keeping this bird? <laughs> ah, that's, a, that's a really good question and a bit of an epic one. Um, about 30 years ago, I actually stumbled into a bird dealer's to have a bit of a winter shop. And um, this is around the time when National Parks and Government had gone into the wild and collected young uh, black-tailed cockatoos, red-tailed cockatoos, and all black cockatoos, actually. Every race, as far as I remember, was collected to be brought into captivity by private breeders to start uh, a deep breed program or to preserve the species. I was lucky enough when I went back to these uh, bird dealers for about a week window shopping because he had these black cockatoos and I was just amazed. I said, oh, when are you going to buy one? And I thought to myself, wow, they're very expensive. I can't really afford one of these. Mm. Um, and he um, started talking about them and he said, I've actually got a, a young pair of extremely rare ones. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he um, took me over to his back room and showed me um, this young, two little young red-tailed cockatoos and he explained that um, they were uh, collected under licence from, I believe, Victoria 
And um, as far as he knows, this is the EU being collected. And he's like, if you're going to buy some, buy these guys. You know, they are a bit more expensive. They were nine thousand dollars each at the time. And back in uh, 1991, that was a lot of money. Yeah. So, so little me handed over eighteen thousand dollars and uh, walked home with something very epic. Yeah. Wow, it's insane. It's pretty clear to me, Bill. You know a lot about this cockatoo. Since they are so rare, how did you get to know so much about them? Okay, well, uh, back when I acquired the birds 30 years ago, there wasn't very much knowledge about black cockatoos in general, let alone uh, their tails and their different races. Species that have been studied have been the two northern and the wheat-built semi-like. So I was very limited on literature to research up on the actual uh, southeastern reptile. So a lot of it was trial and error, as well as reading government reports and studies on the birds. As well as um, Fate Be Fate, one of my friends moved into a family that actually had a property at Orchard. And over time, I was able to go down and stay on this uh, massive farm, which actually had nesting sites of southeastern reptile. Okay. Now, not that many people listening will have the opportunity to keep this bird in their own backyard, but could you please share us a little information about how you manage this bird? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, when birds, I think we all agree that uh, the bigger the aviary, the better. Mm. And under ideal conditions, you know, I would, I would have them in a giant walk, walking forested aviary with but in reality, uh, majority of us, we have backyards and stuff and we can't do that. But a maximum size is always recommended. These birds like to be, they're like macaws, they like to be up high. They're naturally an arboreal species. They, so a suspended aviary setup is actually quite ideal for this race. But where I recommend it for the other races, except maybe naso, being an arboreal species as well. An average size over uh, six metres is the basic dimensions in length that I keep them in. They average 2.4 metres tall and 1.5 metres wide. You could go wider. I do have uh, other aviaries that are non-suspended that I put the birds in as well for flocking. A minimum of six metres I'd recommend. So, clearly, these are big birds and they need some big space. Okay. Um, now, in the wild, this black cockatoo has a considerably high mortality rate at, in subpublications almost at 90% or is at 90%. Do you have any thoughts on why this high mortality and how does it compare to your captive breeding experiences? Yeah, mortality is, is, is actually um, a big thing. Infant mortality of nestlings is a big thing amongst all black cockatoos. With the Grapture Giant, um, with their winter behaviour and where they breed in winter time where it's nice and cold, these birds have shipped down. And from breeding these birds, I've got experience that the chicks need to be brooded at a much lower temperature than any other red tailed And the reason being for that is because of the clearing of a lot of the habitat that they feed trees are on, the male usually cannot collect enough food to help with the baby because he's the one that's supposed to be out there all day collecting. But quite often females have to leave the nest early, like within the first week, and go out there and actually find food as well. So I think 
exposure to cold because of the females out there trying to find food as well is part of the problem with the high mortality rates of the Grab-to-Jai. Another, another theory, and this connects as well with white agarid in winter, would be weather. When we have summer monsoons, these birds tend to nest in uh, big, tall gum trees that are open-topped. So the weather can just pour on into the nesting cavity. And if in our torrential downpours, a lot of the chicks can drown. So there's another reason. Another reason would be from uh, predation of from things like goannas. Goannas can be a real, real problem at uh, taking eggs and nestlings. As well, to a lesser degree, I believe the honeybee may be also a problem. Honeybees uh, swarm and they love to hollow, love to raid hollows. So as has been noted by um, orphanologists observing birds in the field, sometimes nests can be havoced by swarms of bees and they can push um, the parents away and keep them away and unfortunately the nests get abandoned, yeah. Okay. In captivity, do males feed the young? Uh, no. When, when the birds are breeding, the male is not allowed to enter the nest. The female defends her nest log of, of everything, including, them, including her partner, the poor husband's kicked out. However, some um, stronger bonded pairs, the female may allow the male to actually um, perch on the entrance of the log at night time. She will come out and perch next to him, take the food off him, and she goes into feed. Okay. What do you feed your red tails? Okay. The primary diet, because I don't have bullets and desert stringy barks in my backyard, unfortunately. <laughs> so these foodstuffs, their natural diet is just not available to me. And I had to come up with something, a diet to feed them that roughly nutrition-wise copies the nutrition they're getting from their primary uh, food species. So they need a high-protein seed as well as a high-saturated fat seed. There's no one seed available commercially out there that, that fits that criteria. Um, so what I've come up with is feeding them a black sunflower seed, being smaller in size and higher in uh, oil content, um, they closer match the oil content of the uh, stringy bark and the bullet seeds, especially the bullet, they're the primary ones because they're essential for breeding, as well as peanuts for the protein and other legume. So their primary diet would be this, the black sunflower seed mixed with peanuts and other nuts, as well as a dried commercial-grade cat food. And the reason why we give them that is for the pro animal proteins in it, because in the wild, black cockatoos eat grubs and stuff that they find in the tree stumps. Mm -hmm. And um, we lack that in captivity. Some people will train up the birds to actually eat mealworms and stuff, and I've tried and tried and tried, but my birds just refuse to do it. So the easiest way for me to give animal protein to them would be through the cat biscuits. You can also use dog kibbles or monkey chow. Um, it works well. On top of that, they also get, I've got Casarina forest down the back of your property, so they're always in pods. So I always break off branches of pods so the birds can, yeah, consume them, which they do. At first, they wouldn't touch them, but over the years, they've learned to um, adapt to them. And yeah, they've got a very small seed, so they are adaptable to eat Casarina seeds. Um, as well as that, they also eat dandelion and spinach and uh, peas and corn. Cool. 
What do you use for a nest box for your birds? <laughs> Primarily because these birds are very, very destructive. So I don't recommend anyone use a wooden nest box for these birds because they'll destroy it before they lay. So natural hollows is the way to go. But at the same time, they will chew through those as well. So what I do is I use a metal garbage can with holes drilled into the bottom for our drainage. And then through the top of the can, I insert a natural hollow log that actually goes down and sits into the um, garbage can three quarters of the way down. And then I uh, fill up the bottom with a rotted eucalyptus mulch. Uh, so there's about a two and a half, three inch space between the mulch and the bottom of the log. And the females have no problem climbing down into the log and then ending up into a slightly roomier chamber for nesting. Okay. Yeah, it's a very indestructive and secure way of um, having them. Just, yeah. You know, if you have them even a conventional nest box or whatever, and through their chewing ability, or a male wanting getting bored and chewing on the outside while the female's nesting on the inside, you'll end up with broken eggs on the floor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, it sounds to me like breeding this bird, both in the wild and in captivity, is a challenging event. Could you share with us some of your experience-based challenges? Yeah. Uh, disturbances when nesting is, is, is one big thing. When, you, when you're trying to breed these birds, you've got you've to leave them to their own. You can't disturb them too much. So if you live in a smaller complex or you have a lot of uh, activity out in the backyard and that, you're not going to have much luck with breeding these birds um, and you'll have to end up hand rearing. Another challenge is um, having a compatible pair. Just because you put two birds together doesn't mean they're going to be compatible. And uncompatible pairs can be extremely aggressive towards one another and can be um, lethal to one another. They can cause horrific injuries from ripping off beaks to severed feet. They can be vicious. So getting a young pair and keeping them together under observation, very, very important. Yeah. Another challenge would be, um, and this goes with what I said before, and that is imprinting. Um, a lot of the red tails available on the market will be hand raised. So they're to a degree imprinted. So while you want to keep them handleable, you don't want to handle them too much. So my, my primary breeding pair, which is 30 years old, they've been handled all their lives, and I can go in there and they're on me and that, but I never get an infertile leak from them. And they are 100% compatible because you, you've got to keep boundaries. And if you don't keep those boundaries, you're going to have a lot and a lot of challenges with uh, breeding these species. Okay. Um, this black cock cockatoo is rare in the wild. It is annually counted using a um, citizen science project called Look at the Skies, but was cancelled in 2020 due to COVID. So the last official count from 2019 was 1,193 birds. Considering this low number, what do you see as a future for this black cockatoo? I'm optimistic for the future of the grafted giant black cockatoo, both in the wild and in captivity. There's a lot of attention focused on black cockatoos at the moment worldwide, um, especially after the recent bushfires last year. And uh, the governments of both South Australia and Victoria do have Grafted Giant recovery projects happening at the moment where they're 
dealing with the community and dealing with farmers and planting trees and stuff like that. I think I think their future depends on the environment really at the moment because it's good for us to be planting the trees now, but it's going to take 20, 30, 40, 50 years before these trees are any good. So with the artificial nest program that's going on at the moment, that's seeing really, really good success. The birds are using the artificial nest, which is, which is a great thing because nest shortages have been very, very bad. A lot of the old trees have either fallen or been removed from farmers or burnt down in fires. And it's great to see that there is projects out there replacing these trees with uh, alternative nesting sites and the birds are actually using them. Yeah, but that said, it only takes an, an, another fire like we had last year and that could really decimate the population. So with luck, with breeding programs that are going on in captivity, um, the species will be preserved. Okay. Um... Yeah. Do the birds have any particular health issues? The only thing that I've noticed with them, that like like all birds, are susceptible to respiratory illness. So avian flus and stuff like this that are going around, you know, will affect these flocks, you know. And with farmland being in close proximity to where these birds are found, there is always a slight risk of Newcastle disease getting into the wild plots and as well as um, Pittacine beak and feather disease is also a concern. Not that it's been noticed in the southeastern reptile co- uh, colony in the wild, but other species that are found nearby, like Corellas, for instance, have been known to be carrying that and it just takes one contamination of a nest site to introduce that disease and have uh, detrimental on the species okay uh, what about what about in captivity um, is there any health issues that could arise um, well apart from injury and that from poor Avery design and stuff which does happen unfortunately with certain people um, parasites disease is always going to be an issue so you've got to your, your basic Avery management should be arranged to reduce that effect. The reason why I use suspended aviaries is, one, this species rarely goes to the ground, which is great, so I can do that. But if you go and have a species that's able to go to the ground, that's where the majority of the parasites are going to come from and introduce disease to your birds. Same with the bacteria, same with the viruses. So if your birds can't get access to the dirty ground and your birds can't... Um, Wild birds don't have access to put their droppings, for instance, into your bird's water. You shouldn't have any real issues. The only other issue that might pop up is rodent infestation. They're extremely susceptible to um, bacterial infections from rodents. You know, so it only takes one rodent dropping in their uh, food or water, and that can wipe out your bird pretty much overnight. So you've got to be very diligent there. And... Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. We generally don't have any worming issues. Um, we generally never have to uh, worm the birds because they don't have a contamination point to receive the worms in the first place. So really, prevention is better than cure like anything. So if you keep good general bird keeping hygiene, like you would for most species, and the birds should be quite bulletproof. When you do worm them, do you use any particular uh, worming mixture? 
Um, I generally use Vetifarm products. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I try to just stick to one brand. Um, and that way, if there is any problems in that, you're not left scratching your head, oh, which medicine was it? You know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah, you, you've got the one source, the one company to contact about problems, and it, it's just a bit more efficient as well. Okay. Now, Bill, I have learned that you are planning a really special project to support the long-term survival of these southeastern red tails. It sounds very promising. So, do you want to tell us a little about what you're intending to do? Yeah, um, I'm going to start up a breeding sanctuary. I intend on purchasing some farmland and um, rehabilitating it, planting some essential uh, trees into the area, building uh, breeding facilities, and yeah, turning it into a sanctuary for the red-tailed black cockatoos uh, for captive breeding program. Hopefully, one day, these guys can be released into the wild to supplement and help out with the wild population. Unfortunately, I'm going to need some help to do so because it's going to be expensive. So I started up a GoFundMe site. If people like to donate, which would be much appreciated, they can go to GoFundMe and look up Southeastern Black Cockatoo Breeding Sanctuary and uh, donate. Um, anything, a dollar, two dollars, whatever, times are hard, but anything would be so much appreciated. As well, if people could just share the word out there let it spread around the world. That would be so wonderful. Yeah, thank you. All right, well, thank you for coming on uh, BirdCast. Um, absolutely, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wow, that was really interesting. Today's episode provided a great insight into this very rare and precious red-tailed black cockatoo. Hopefully, the next time we interview Bill, it will be when he releases his very special cockatoos into his sanctuary. We would love to hear your feedback about today's episode. Remember, we have an Instagram, birdman underscore dad. Bye.